and welcome to the Virtually Confident podcast, where you take away tips on how to be more confident. Now, today we're talking about public speaking, and there's three of us, three public speaking experts. We are on three different parts of the public speaking anxiety trauma scale. So, um, first of all, we're gonna, I'm going to introduce you to Graham Davis, who's the presenter coach. He's written a book about it. He helps world-class world leaders with their public speaking and politicians. And you might have even seen him on TV. I've also got Olivia James, who's at the other end of the public speaking anxiety trauma scale because she helps people that are absolutely terrified when it comes to public speaking. So she's an anxiety expert and I've worked with her as well and she is amazing. And then I'm in the middle of the public speaking anxiety trauma scale because I'm a recovered glossophobic. So working in the virtual world, we're almost out of it. Are you looking forward to doing live presentations, Graham? Very much so. I actually miss the proximal chemistry of human beings being in the same room as me. Because you can do a certain amount by using the right words and saying them in the right way via a microphone and via a camera. But somehow the chemical nature of humans, human beings being together in the same space, you could only get real rapport when they're in the same room as you, not just by a microphone or a camera link. And I've missed that desperately over the last eight months. Yes, I think what I realise is I am missing out on oxytocin. I think my oxytocin levels, <laughs> when you actually feel somebody's presence, they've completely diminished. And I just can't wait to be live in the studio. We were snuck in here almost, you know, we're, we're snuck in here a little bit today. So we've got a little bit of each other's real company. How are you finding it, Olivia? Are you looking forward to going back to the real world? I am indeed, but I think it's going to be a long time before we're back. And I think th this virtual virtual will stay with, with us for a, quite a long time. And uh, virtual for me has been quite a big learning curve. I, I've had my fair share of tech things going wrong. And as Graham said, and as you've said, I think, it's good to be able to focus on being the show pony. And But obviously, all of us have had to you know, I've had some epic fails when I've been live presenting due to tech going wrong. And it's all about how you recover from it and don't let it destabilize you too much. And then don't beat yourself up too much. Learn from it and then move on. Absolutely. I mean, we've seen it all, haven't we? We've seen cats. Graham, I'm sure you, you must have laughed at the at the the Texan lawyer who turned up live as a kitten. <laughs> Well, when I spent 14 years practising at the criminal bar, dressing up in a furry animal outfit was one of the few attractions of what you could do. Uh, so I wasn't too phased by it. Uh, but it's interesting, I, I did indeed have to dress up every day in the Crown Court wearing a horsehair wig. So seeing someone else dressed as another hairy animal didn't phase me too much at all. No, no, it didn't seem to phase the other judge either, did it? <laughs> So let's... Uh, well, judges judges like to see lawyers squirming for whatever reason. So it probably didn't bother him in the slightest. <laughs> so I mean, I've I've been um, speaking to lots of lawyers all over the world in little squares, in little on Teams, on on Webex, and, and on various different platforms. And lots and lots of things have have gone wrong. Lots of things have gone right as well. But some of my some of my highlights are the boss that turned herself into a potato. But also, I remember I was running a session. It was all about 
working remotely at the very beginning of lockdown, Graham, and I actually got a tech guy, James, to come and help me talk about the, you know, be careful of the tech issues. But literally everything went wrong. We actually got the wrong slide up. The slides are going flick, 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 flick. Um, we got the, the, the sound went off and we were unmuted. People weren't, weren't muted when they were supposed to be muted and it was an absolute disaster. So, Graham, I know that you've had a few disasters yourself. What, what have been your highlights of the remote speaking world? Whenever I do a major keynote, and by that I mean 45 minutes straight into camera, followed by 45 minutes of questions, I make sure that I've got a production team around me as if it's a TV show. So I've got somebody operating a couple of broadcast standard cameras. I've got a producer with me in the room. I've also got a technical person in the room. And also, off-site in another location, I've got someone who acts as the host, facilitator, and introducer, and she is the person who picks up the questions from the live chat. Now, that may sound over the top, but actually for me, again, it goes back to allowing me to focus on what I'm good at, which is speaking and answering people's questions. When, of course, I've ever done a TV interview, I haven't had to be the person that at the BBC who's meeting me at the door, the receptionist, uh, someone who's making me a cup of tea, uh, the the assistant producer who runs through the order of the show, the producer who wants to check exactly what I'm going to say, the stage manager, the cameraman. I make sure I'm not doing any of that when essentially I'm creating my own TV show when I'm doing a corporate keynote. Absolutely. And that's that's in the keynote environment. A lot of people ask me, though, that are running meetings and quite large scale meetings, but it's not branded a keynote as such. And they ask me, how do I have that broadcast quality? So what about if you haven't got a team like that around you? What, what are your main tips to, to your, I mean, obviously, you've got very, very high profile clients that are doing TV interviews, but they're also doing meetings, and they're having to turn up and click on links. <laughs> What do you say to them? I would still say this. Admittedly, um, you can't have that full, essentially five-man team I've got around me. But you can, especially if you, surely most people who work for most reasonable size organisations can have access to a technical chap who works in their technical department, at least for the first few minutes of the meeting, to check some of the stuff all the logistics are at least going well or at least have some foundation for going well for the rest of the meeting. I urge people not to be their own technical guy for the first five minutes of any meeting, but to always have somebody there who's making sure that, uh, to use a rather clumsy analogy, that the engine is running properly and then gets out of the car and allows you to drive it. Absolutely. And one of my tips there is always have a co-pilot, somebody that can look at the chat and look at all the things that are going on on screen so you can be concentrating on the camera. And that, and that is an absolute must. And I think a lot of people make the mistake of not looking into the camera. That's the biggest mistake people are making. Do you find that, Graham? Even on the news when you see politicians doing their, their Zoom interviews on the news. Yes, under under the stress, they <laughs> often do that tele, that um, TV politician look down, and they start speaking down into their chin, and you think, gosh, 
they look even more shifty as politicians <laughs> when they're not looking into the camera. And frankly, I'm amazed that no one tells them that. Right, you need to go and tell them, Graham. You've got more access than most people. You've got to tell them, look into the camera. I mean, it is a bit weird in that environment, though. You get a bit freaked out because sometimes you can't, it's not obvious what's going on. You're not, you're not even sure when you're on air. But so, another tip always imagine that the camera is looking at you, <laughs> whatever happens. Olivia, give us some of your, your highs and lows of the virtual world. Um, I was doing a live panel broadcast. I made sure I turned all my notifications off. And then I'd somebody tried to call me on Facebook Messenger and I just couldn't work out where the noise was coming from. Live broadcast. I just had to make it stop. So... Next time, obviously, I make sure all that stuff's turned off. I mean, I've had, I was presenting, we, we're using Teams today, Microsoft Teams. I'm a Mac user. Um, couldn't make it work despite all my, so I had to resort to the next slide, please. And my host had to do the next slide, please. Now, next time, I will make sure that doesn't happen. But it's all about recovering from those things. I think, okay, well, that didn't go well. Don't add it to the arsenal of things I beat myself up with, evidence to show that I'm a useless, you know, <laughs> shouldn't be doing this. Because this is what people do when I treat people with anxiety. They've got a bank of evidence of those sorts of things going wrong to show them that they are really no good. And so the thing is, like, you know, everybody makes mistakes, learn from them, move on, and then try again. So don't beat, up, beat yourself up too much. Things always go wrong. Thank you very much. Listening to, <laughs> listening to Olivia there has just reminded me that, that there is, we, we've already talked in, in another uh, uh, show about the public speaking trauma scale. Yes. I think there's another subscale that we should consider the slide trauma scale. <laughs> oh, I because love that. The, the slide, when you say slide trauma, don't you, don't you, you, that could be the slide pain scale. Well, it could be. And of course, I'm talking not just from the audience's point of view, but from the user, the serial user's point of view. <laughs> because the more visuals you use, the more bells and whistles that you try to use on your software, on your laptop, in your virtual platform, the more likely it is that something will go wrong. So I always think that an, any presentation would be vastly improved by cutting either 50% of the slides or 100% of the slides. But I think that is even more so now during virtual conditions because people are actually hiding behind slides. They're using more slides than they did before so they don't have to appear on camera. Whereas I would advise them very strongly, reduce the number of slides, you'll reduce your own presentational stress. Can I ask you, Graham, how many slides do you normally use if you're doing a keynote? Do you use slides? None. Zero. <laughs> Null. Rien. Null point. <laughs> do you know what? That is really interesting. I've got a very, very quickly, a very, very funny story here. I was, was, I did a, I was helping a guy who was doing a very, very, very important career-changing speech. And he wanted me to come in and help to put the French polish on, as you do, Graham. He wanted me to come in and help him with technique. And he thought, you know, if I could help him stand well, speak well, and deliver his speech with an excellent voice, you know, he would, re he would, he would change his career with, uh, I think his audience was about 400 lawyers, Graham. Just, short, just perfect for you. Anyway, I went in to see him and he, he said, right, okay, so I've got, I've got my slides professionally um, 
professionally designed. And he put the slides out on, on the desk. And I said, and it was a massive, fat deck like that. And he, and he looked at my face and went, oh, he went, do you think there were too many? Guess how many slides he had? And it was, it was a 40-minute presentation. Guess how many slides he had? 40. 199! <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> right? So, I mean, and that, that's in the real world, but you're absolutely right to, to relate it to the virtual world as well. Slides should be something that makes you go, ooh, ah! They shouldn't be pasted over the entire screen so you can't see the human being. And, and my advice is, if you are going to have slides, have very, very little text, i.e. one word or one, one um, piece of data per slide, and just use images if they add. They've got to add to the content. So I, I like to flip between slides and no slides, and sometimes people get quite surprised by that. What do you think about that combo, Graham? Well. I don't think that anybody has ever walked out of either a live presentation or a virtual presentation and said, gosh, I was so impressed with that guy. I really want to do a business business with him. And the real reason is because I loved his slides. <laughs> I don't think anybody has ever done that in the history of communication. They love the communicator. They love the person who's been speaking. But I don't, I don't think anybody has decided to do business with somebody else as a result of their slides. And I think that will always be the case. Olivia, where do you stand on slides? I've heard a really good thing once about if somebody looks at your slides, they shouldn't be able to see what the presentation is actually about. So the fact that your, that your, your story makes sense of the slides. So I've, I've given a talk where the first slide was a piece of celery, the second one was a little deer in a field, and my story is about some people are terrified of celery. And then I explain about the deer in the field, the fight flight, so you can really make it really much more interesting. So it doesn't have to, when you look at the slides, you shouldn't not necessarily be able to see what the, the whole presentation was. Your words like glue it together. Yeah, and the, I, the guilty secret that some people have, of course, is instead of using what Olivia has delightfully described the stick of celery as as symbolising something, and it, you're not knowing what on earth is that celery there for, until Olivia explains it. Really, people are preparing slides as their notes, as their script, to remind them what to say. They're not using them as something that makes it easier for the audience to be strikingly compelled by what they're saying. The slides are, in fact, slidermunts that they <laughs> want to read themselves. And the thing about the celery and the deer, I love the idea of that, but in the virtual world, you don't really want just to have a massive, great stick of celery just on the screen and no person. I think when you're in an auditorium and the celery's there and you're there, you know, they're looking at your body language and feeling you they're feeling you Olivia then I think that's that's I think that's much yeah. it, is, it does enhance it but on screen it is a bit weird I think there are different platforms now that will allow the speaker to be like in the bottom corner so you can still see my face while you also see the celery slide or and you can flip it as well so so why you could see my adorable face and then the slide in the corner like lower down so there are different some new platforms coming out with that that allows you to do both yeah, again. Can I just mention something there, Esther, yeah. if you don't mind? You said, oh, that would look a bit weird. 
I think we need a bit more weird <laughs> in Zoom presentations at the moment because actually people are spending far too long in Zoom trance, staring at their screen, reading lots and lots of bullet points, seeing all the same graphs and pie charts. A little bit of weird now and again is a good way of waking people away from that Zoom trance. You're absolutely right. I, I mean, I've been speaking to neuroscientists and therapists and psychologists over the last few days doing podcasts, talking about working virtually. And what I've found out in the last 48 hours is that our prefrontal cortexes are totally screwed. <laughs> we can't concentrate. We can't remember things. We're, we're not focused because we are in this trance. And it's really, really, really bad for us to be doing endless zooming um, so let's let's just let's wrap this um, working from home little discussion up with how do we feel about remote working on a scale of naught to 10 how do you feel about it I like it in the sense that um, I don't necessarily have to shave every day <laughs> but I hate it in the fact in, in, in the sense that there's no one else here <laughs> so I'm gonna go with five out of ten okay Olivia I really miss seeing clients face to face. I mean, I love seeing clients in in Harley Street face to face. You can get some really good results on Zoom, but it just isn't the same. I'm not able to go as far as fast with a client if they're not actually in front of me. So I I really really miss that, and I miss I miss you know going out and having fun and miss conferences and all that stuff. So, but. You know, I made the best of it. I, I think uh, that's probably the fairest uh, way to put put it about the lockdown. Yeah, OK. Well, I think I started off at like two out of ten because I absolutely hated it. I hated the knobs and buttons. I hated the tech. Just like today, we had a bit of a false start. I remember at the BBC, it used to plague me when they used to say, can you switch from Studio A to Studio B? I used to go, no, please don't make me do the technology. So the technology used to freak me out. But then I got, I got, I started being able to do quite good tricks on Zoom, I actually got into the whole Zoom culture, Graham. Can you imagine that? Zoom culture. Picture that. Yes, it's a bit of a, that's a bit of a contradiction in terms, <laughs> isn't it? Zoom culture. Uh, Zoom, I believe, has, has, has shown, and, and of course we're using Zoom in a generic sense yes. in the same way as we use um, Hoover yes. for, the, for, for vacuum cleaner. Yes. Um, Zoom will always now be a perfectly adequate second choice. But I really can't see it becoming everyone's first choice. Now, we are. I'm going to ask you, what do you think is going to happen next later in the discussion? But I'm going to just plop this one in now because we're on the subject of Zoom and hybrid presentations and presenting with cameras, presenting as if you're a broadcaster on, on a TV um, atmosphere. But what do you think the future holds in terms of remote working and and just given that we're probably not going to be flying as much, flying around the world and travelling around the world, what do you think the future holds when it comes to the next... What you've, I'm going to steal this um, term off you, Graham. The next abnormal. You call it the next abnormal. <laughs> well, the, the, the next abnormal we have to get used to is, as you mentioned, the hybrid situation will occur not just because people would have been normally been flying in from the four corners of the world, but perhaps just because they otherwise would have been Ubering in from the four corners of London. So you'll have a situation where automatically, instead of a meeting for, say, 50 people, there'll be a meeting for 25 or 30 people, and there will automatically be set up in most corporate meeting rooms a camera, or, or, or more than one camera, where uh, to which the 
presenter has to be focused as well as being focused towards the audience. And you may indeed have in every corporate meeting room one of those large screens that actually has the faces of people, the 20 people who aren't attending. And every presenter will have to get used to that hybrid situation of dealing with, say, 30 human beings in the room, but dealing with the other 20 human beings by making sure that they're also paying attention to the camera or cameras that are there. So it becomes almost like everybody in the future We'll have to get used to presenting a live television show with a with a live studio audience. So I've actually done a few of these um, presentations where we've had offices tuning in from different parts of the world. I've done it with a law last year. I, I did a, an International Women's Day event with a law firm where everyone tuned in and they had a and I asked for, the, for them to have Eurovision style presenters in each territory. So people tuned in from all over the world with their different presenters, and we had a couple of cameras in the room, and so I was encouraging the room to look at the camera, wave at the camera, and it was a bit, ooh, it's a bit like a theme park. And, and little did I know, within a few weeks, we were, that was, we were setting the tone for the future. <laughs> um, now, when it comes to working with a camera, that is the key here. So, Graham, how do you feel about working the camera? Is that something that you, that you, that, that you're, that you're, you feel comfortable with and confident with? It's something I've had to adapt to because although I've been on television quite a few times over the last 15 years, of course, it's always been in an interview scenario. Either it's just been me plus two presenters or me plus one presenter or me plus another guest and one or two presenters. But we're all in the dialogue position, side on to the camera. So uh, very rarely am I looking into the camera, except, say, for instance, when I'm outside the House of Commons being interviewed, looking straight in. And I always found that thing of looking straight into the camera something I really need to focus for, something I really need to get in the right mood for, because, of course, it's just not natural staring at a piece of plastic and glass. It's not natural at all. It's, it's a learned skill. And I've had to get jolly well used to it over the last nine months. Hasn't always been easy. Yeah, absolutely. I feel the same. I mean, I've been helping people to get used to loving the lens for, for 20 years. And then I've had to do it myself. And I have found it very unnerving having to turn on your personality to look at a lens. But one of my tips is imagine that that lens is somebody that you have a very intimate relationship with. <laughs> Does that help you, Graham? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to deflect that because I'm dying to ask Olivia this. Don't you find that some people genuinely find the staring into a camera aspect traumatic? I think they find it really unusual. And part of what happens is, as humans, so when I'm doing a, 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 a an interview with Esther, for example, I want to look at her instead of it in the camera. Because as I'm talking, I'm looking at her face thinking, oh, is she, is she getting what I'm saying? Does she like me? Is she angry with me? We all do this thing called neuroception, where we, we, we want cues from the other person. So when I'm also having to look in the camera, that becomes a lot more difficult. And it becomes, and this is part of the reason I think people get so so tired of Zoom, because we're, we're trying to do all those different things at the same time. So my tip, I have, I've tried using a post-it note with a smiley face and an arrow near my camera, but in my experience, they always flop, they curl and flop down. So I've, I, I use a, a, a hard index card now, and, and 
put an arrow in a smiley face and really try and look look at it that way. But it is tiring. And, and then I can still sneak a little look at the person I'm talking to or my audience, but really try and focus up the camera. But it isn't easy. I totally agree with you. Yeah, we, we actually did a whole thing. We did a whole little show on this about how your brain has got to do four jobs at the same time. Looking into the camera is just one learnt skill. You're absolutely right, Graham. But your brain is actually doing four different things at, at that moment. So it's like looking at the camera, th- trying to see the person's body language and non-verbals um, at the same time and, and second-guessing how they're receiving it. Yeah. I, I'm amazed, actually, that technology hasn't caught up with reality over the last eight months. Surely it's not beyond the realms of these technology companies to create a laptop which has some sort of camera in the middle of the screen. It is and coming, that Graham. Be, it's absolutely coming, Graham. I, I, I've spoken to people that are developing technology as we speak. They're just a bit slow on the uptake. Yes, can you tell them to get on with it, yes, please? I know that the cameras in screens, are that is the next big thing. Because when you go to big offices and when, you, when you're working with um, clients like, you know, the big um, professional services firms, they've got these massive screens. They've got loads of room where they could put the camera. And I know that they are redesigning all, all of those screens right now. It's just that they're going to slightly miss the boat, aren't they, with the Zoom cultural revolution? <laughs> well, I'm going to give you, unusually uh, now, Graham Davis is now about, probably, this is a world first, Graham Davis is about to give a technology tip. I, this is not my idea, and forgive me, I saw it uh, from a professional speaker on Facebook, and to my to my shame, I can't remember uh, what the name of this speaker was. But to be fair, he was he was also um, putting it out as a, as a tip to the entire professional speaker network. There is a way that you can actually hang a small camera from the top of your screen using bits of plastic. It has to be a small camera. And there are particular sort of plastic holders that you can have that some people put uh, leaflets on in the corner of their office or on the or they put leaflets on on, the, on a shop counter. And you could, you could hang a small camera in the middle of your screen. Admittedly, that cuts out a, a 10 or 20% of your vision space on the screen, but it does mean you don't have that weird disconnecting thing of having to continually look up to the top of the screen. So try and find a way of working out how to hang a small camera in the middle of your laptop screen. Do you have a particular tip? You've got a post-it tip or a hard, bit of hard card. Have you got a tip of how to look at the camera, Olivia? So the other thing I do is next to my camera, I also have some crib notes taped to the top of my MacBook so that I don't have to look away to, for, for some little keynotes and some reminders. So that's probably my biggest tip. So hard card, uh, sticky back plastic. <laughs> my tip is actually, depending on what platform you're using, and it just I know that with Zoom, you can actually use the little icons and move the icons on your screen and put them right under the lens so you're looking directly into the lens is like an inch away and actually if you sit slightly back I'm not going to sit back because we're actually in the studio we're not in, we're not in vision here um, we only are for each other but if you if you if you if you're well mic'd up and you sit slightly further back from your camera you can't tell where your eyes are as long as you're looking vaguely where the, where the camera is it looks like you're looking at the camera and that is a massive revelation oh the other the other thing that that you can also do is you can 
Everybody that, that hasn't got their camera on on the call in your audience, you can turn all those off and put them on a separate page. So all you have is actual people looking at you because it can be unnerving as well if, if you just see somebody's screensaver and you think, well, nobody's listening to me. They're all, whatever, <laughs> doing a pedicure or whatever. They're, you know, they're, not, they're not paying attention to me. <laughs> but in terms of the future, we all have to look into the camera. So, Graham, what's, what are you going to do to help your camera skills. I just got to keep. I, I regard uh, presenting not as a science because it's more human than that, and I don't regard it as an art either because it's not an ability that you're just born with. It's a sport, and virtual presenting is a very specialised subdivision within the sport of presenting, and it's something that you can only really get better at by continuous practice. And so I'm just going to make sure that I do as much speaking on camera as possible. And eventually, any discomfort I have will disappear. You're absolutely right. You can't learn experience. You have to experience experience and learn from it. <laughs> Not all the time, but it, I mean, with something like working on camera, you learn something every time you do it, don't you, Graham? Yeah, absolutely. The, the, I, I find that things that happen to me under performance pressure are things that I don't forget. <laughs> And those are things that I write down afterwards. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And okay, let's talk about um, your confidence. When have you lost your confidence? When do you, when do you feel less confident yourself? I feel less confident if I haven't had the chance to prepare, because I actually think that preparation is the is is the best foundation of confidence of confidence. And actually, when I say prepare specifically, for instance, for a big speech. The more I rehearse that speech in advance, the better that my performance is. And I know that. And I know sometimes when I have just haven't been uh, 10 out of 10, I've been at 7.5 out of 10, because I just couldn't force myself to rehearse enough. I have never seen anybody fail as a result of too much rehearsal. So sometimes people say to me, oh, you know, can you prepare too much? I'm going to ask you about this in a moment, um, Olivia, because that you, you help people that really suffer from anxiety before, before they speak. But sometimes it's not so much about a one big performance. It's a, it's a general turning up on a daily basis. So that's a mini performance, these little mini micro performances, and they just don't feel um, confident enough. I mean, what about when you have to turn up in meetings that aren't necessarily, you can't necessarily prepare 100%? Well, it depends. You say prepare 100%. I still prepare 100% of the stuff that I can prepare. And the more I have prepared and the more I've thought about what I want to say, the more I can adapt to sudden weird things happening in the meeting that I couldn't have prepared for. It's like being prepared to ski down the middle of the piste and making sure that you're really good at skiing down the middle of the piste means that you're very ready to go off-piste if necessary. I think sometimes people struggle with not quite knowing what their the, the opponent is going to be like, though. Like, there's preparing for a pitch or a meeting, but then there's going to be three other people, maybe, you know, quite a few of them you haven't met before, and you're not sure what they might throw at you. Yes, that's certainly the case. But the only way that, of course, you can get over nerves or anxiety about that, I believe, and I'd be interested to hear Olivia's opinion on mm. this, continuously put yourself in those situations 
and actually force yourself through the anxiety barrier? Or, or does that make people even more frightened, Olivia? Um, <laughs> so exposure therapy is what you're talking about. Um, ah, which is, I didn't even know that. <laughs> oh, yes, we've talked about this before. Which is Which used to be the only thing that people had, just keep doing it, keep doing it, and eventually your stress hormones will reduce. So my way of working with people is definitely you need to do the exposure. Then you need to know what to do. You need the technical skills, but also you need to self-regulate. You need to manage your nerves. Because if you are super nervous, the exposure can be even more traumatic because if you mess it up, that becomes another evidence bank, another another thing that, that will make you want to avoid it. So you need to self-regulate. You need to calm your nervous system. You need the skills and then you need to do it, but it needs to be manageable so it doesn't become overwhelming and re-traumatize you into paralysis and avoidance forevermore. Okay, let's move on to confidence and women and confidence. Now, I've been asking all my guests in this podcast series about the 80% perfect phenomenon. And, you know, it's been written about before the 60% issue where men are more likely to go for a job, for example, or men are more likely to pipe up in a meeting if they're only 60% sure of what they're saying. And they're quite happy to... Not all men, and and, um, this is... I'm saying... Forgive the sweeping statements, but um, I have spoken to thousands of um, women all over the world about this phenomenon. And quite often, if I ask a room full of women, how sure do you have to be in order for you to pipe up and speak up in a meeting or go for that job interview? You know, if men are around 60%, what do you think you are? And do you know what the average answer to that question is? Do you know, Graham? I certainly don't. No, the average answer to that question is more than 100%. (laughs) So so basically, we we always agree at the end of the discussion that we should all try and be 80% perfect. So there is a very big difference between competence and confidence. And I think male men in particular tend to over be overconfident. So a lot of women are more conscientious. So there's a book um, and a TED Talk uh, called Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders? <laughs> Have a think about that, Graham. <laughs> a business psychologist, uh, Dr. Chamorro Premazik. And he uh, sets out this thing that, that we value overconfidence, but what we actually need from a leader is, is co- being conscientious. And so somebody worrying about am I is what I'm saying actually valid is actually not a bad thing. So, you know, if I have a client who works in finance, you know, and, and she's female, she wants to make sure that what the figures that she quotes are absolutely correct because it's going to impact lots of people. So there isn't anything wrong with that. We all know those leaders naming no names who are full of blustering confidence, <laughs> but who actually have no substance to back up what they're saying. So there isn't anything wrong with um, with with being conscientious and wanting to be secure. So I think but organisations need to change that at a, an organisational level. So we value sort of integrity more than just bluster and overconfidence. I don't know. I mean, is blustering overconfidence? Graham, you must have worked with quite a few people that have, they're confident, but are they competent and vice versa? There is such a thing as having too much confidence because too much confidence means that you think you don't need to prepare. It means you don't feel you don't need to rehearse. 
It means you feel you don't need to continually sharpen and refine the material that you're going to use in a speech or a meeting. And actually, that is a really good way, a combination of enormous confidence, but with zero competence is a splendid recipe for total disaster. (laughs) And on that bombshell, thank you so much for joining me, Graham Davis. Thank you very much for joining us today. I'm delighted to have been here. And Olivia James, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. 